The news has continued to be dominated this week by what is happening in Israel-Palestine. The New York Times has a long piece up for their magazine about the Oslo peace accords from the Clinton years and whether peace was ever a realistic possibility. The TLDR, probably not, because there was just never enough popular support on either side for the sorts of negotiations and concessions to take place that would have been needed. To simplify what is an extremely complex situation, the reason peace seems completely unrealistic is that there are elements on both sides of the conflict who are convinced of their right to the same land. And, perhaps even more damning, they are convinced that the other side has consistently and egregiously trampled on those rights over decades, if not millennia. The conflict is in some senses a very ancient one, with both pointing to promises made by God to Abraham as they understand them, a divine right to the land, to borrow the explosive phrase, the land both sides believe is theirs from the river to the sea. In another sense, it's a modern conflict, incited in the aftermath of the Holocaust by a new international order who were shocked and appalled by the fate of the Jews in World War II and gave them, here's that word again, the right to an independent state where the Jewish people could protect themselves, no longer underneath the thumbs of the world regimes that had so often turned on them. And so the international community, using the force of international law, decreed a right to a homeland for the Jewish people. And forcibly, they evicted many of those who had been living there, who felt their own rights to the land that their families had been living on for generations. That is one model of making change in a world that is so often shocking and appalling, to forcibly create and enforce rights. Rights to land, civil rights, human rights. And in the continuation of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, we see the common result of forcibly created and enforced rights. Now, that isn't to say that there's no need for that model to ever be used. That's a conversation that takes us far away from where we want to go today. It's simply to point out that forcibly created and enforced rights often engender resentment and defiance, often violent resistance. Now, putting that topic on the shelf for just a minute, but kind of keep it on a shelf in your mind that you can kind of see out of the corner of your eye, if you know what I mean. This week is our final week of our series looking at four themes that show up throughout the Bible, which, uh, when understood at a deeper level, can help us see what Scripture is doing as we read it and those themes come up. So, so far, we've looked at water as signaling God moving both people and situations from death to life, fire and its consistent symbolizing of God's presence, and bread, showing us a God who knows and who meets our needs. Today, we're looking at another image that shows up from Genesis to Revelation, family. Genesis is centered around the family of Abraham. In Exodus, God, in staking claim over the Hebrew slaves, proclaims that Israel is my son. And in the New Testament, one of the most consistent ways that the work of Jesus is described is that he has come to make all nations, young, old, male, female, rich, poor, and slaves, into the family of God. God is described as Father, Jesus as the firstborn son, and we are the rest of the children of that family. I, like many of you, I'm sure, have heard many sermons emphasizing the love and acceptance that is ours through Jesus because we are children of God. And that is an important and true element of the family language that shows up throughout scripture. It's one we should never lose sight of. That in this world of turmoil and displacement where old ways of finding our identity and meaning have often failed, this one has not and will not fail. We belong to Jesus. This is who we are.
and. What we're going to be looking at today is a little book of the Bible where Paul takes this reality and pushes on the implications of it in ways that are fascinating, even radical, and which challenge us today. If you're one who likes to read along, we are going to be working in the book of Philemon, a book that is full of the image of family. I'm going to be reading from N.T. Wright's translation, which I noticed a little while back is now available on the website Bible Gateway. It's the New Testament for everyone, so if you go there, you could read along with it via that website. So here's the setup to this book. Philemon was a leader in the church in the city of Colossae, as in the letter to the Colossians. He came to trust Jesus through the work of Paul, and he had a large enough house, read he was wealthy and prominent enough in the city, that he could host a house church gathering in his home. He was, as Paul outlines in this letter to Philemon, a good and just man and a committed follower of Jesus. He was also, as would have been almost universally the case in his time and place and for a person of his status, a slaveholder. One of those slaves we don't know how many Philemon might have had, escaped. And somehow, whether intentionally or by God's grace, found his way to Paul, who was in prison, likely in the nearby city of Ephesus, but possibly all the way in Rome. Scholars disagree on that one. That slave also came to trust in Jesus through Paul. And he proved useful to Paul in prison in some way. In fact, useful was the slave's name. Onesimus was a common, dehumanizing name given to slaves, reducing the person to the function that they might play for their master. Onesimus has come to Paul and now follows Jesus. And Paul sees an opportunity, or an obligation, perhaps, to spell out some of the implications of the gospel for Philemon and the rest of the Colossian church. I am going to read the full letter, which will only take a minute or so. Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to our beloved Philemon, our colleague and partner, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our comrade in arms, and to God's people who meet in their house. May grace and peace be upon you from God our Father and the Messiah Jesus the Lord. I always thank my God when your name comes up in my prayers, because I've heard of your love and faithful loyalty towards the Lord Jesus and to all God's people. My prayer is this, that the partnership which goes with your faith may have its powerful effect in realizing every good thing that is at work in us to lead us into the Messiah. You see, my dear brother, your love gives me so much joy and comfort. You have refreshed the hearts of God's people. Because of all this, I could be very bold in the Messiah and order you to do the right thing. But because of love, I'd much rather appeal to you. Yes, it's me, Paul, speaking, an old man as I am and now a prisoner of Messiah Jesus. I am appealing to you about my child, the one I have fathered here in prison, Onesimus, Mr. Useful. There was a time when he was useless to you, but now he's very useful to you and to me. I'm sending him to you for your decision. Yes, sending the man himself, and this means sending my own heart. I would have liked to keep him here with me, so that he could have been your representative and serving me in the chains of the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without you knowing about it. That way, when you did the splendid thing that the situation requires, it wouldn't be under compulsion, but of your own free will. Look at it like this. Maybe this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you could have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a beloved brother. 
beloved especially to me, but how much more to you, both as part of your household and in the Lord. So anyway, if you reckon me a partner in your work, receive him as though he was me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, put that down on my account. This is me, Paul, writing with my own hand. I'll pay you back. And far be it from me to remind you that you owe me your own very self. Yes, my brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Messiah. As I write this, I'm confident that you'll do what I say. In fact, I know you'll do more than I say. But at the same time, get a guest room ready for me. I'm hoping you see that through your prayers, I will be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Messiah Jesus, sends you greetings. So to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my colleagues here. The grace of the Lord, Messiah Jesus, be with your spirit. It's really a fascinating letter. As much for what it does not say, as for what it does. And most of all, for how Paul says it. It's caused scholars to argue about darn near everything, from whether Paul is an abolitionist, a slavery supporter, or an abolitionist but only for Christians, uh, to whether Onesimus ran away because he was afraid of Philemon's cruelty, or he had stolen something, or was hoping to get Paul to advocate on his behalf, or had really screwed up the household business in some way and was in deep trouble. Paul doesn't mention these things because they are tangential to the actual point he's trying to make about the implications of the gospel. So feel free to wildly speculate. (laughs) For our purposes, I want to focus on how Paul uses the family image that is central to what he's doing here. It starts at the very beginning. Timothy, our brother, is writing alongside Paul. They are writing to Philemon and to Aphia, our sister, and to the church in their house. The senders and receivers of this letter are all tied up in this same extended family under, verse 3, God our Father. In verse 7, Paul gets more personal, praising Philemon, my dear brother, for the way he has faithfully served the church and brought joy to the hearts of both Paul and all other Christians. The first 30% of the letter are Paul building up the ties that bind them together and the ways Philemon already knows something crucial about being in this same family of God. Not only belonging to Jesus, but the responsibilities to one another that that belonging demands. Because being in a family is about more than belonging, isn't it? It's about the obligations we have to one another that arise out of or alongside of belonging. Philemon gets praise heaped upon him for the ways he has fulfilled those obligations as a rich and prominent member of the family of God. He knows the responsibilities he has and what it means for him to fulfill them to the other members of the family. And Paul uses this platform to get to the real point. He has a demand. No, no, not a, not a demand. It's entirely up to Philemon whether he will do the right thing or not. <laughs> Paul has an appeal, let's say, verse 10, on behalf of Paul's beloved child, one that Paul has fathered in prison by bringing them to trust in Jesus, thus drawing this person into this family to whom Philemon's obligations and responsibilities have already been established. Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave. Well, that complicates things, doesn't it? What does it mean When Philemon is Paul's child in the faith, and so is Onesimus. When Philemon is a beloved brother, but so is Onesimus. What are the implications of that gospel? 
As in all slave-holding cultures, slave owners had certain property rights, including that their escaped slaves would be returned to them. But how could those rights still hold within a family between brothers? Paul goes on to say that he had wanted to keep Onesimus with him in violation of Roman law, because of the work Onesimus was already doing for the gospel and for Paul. Paul could have forcibly created and enforced rights on behalf of Onesimus and then commanded Philemon to obey. I wonder how that might have gone. But instead, Paul is sending Onesimus back so that Philemon can wrestle with the implications of the gospel for himself. Because these implications make deep demands upon him as a member of this family. The ways that the good news that he and all the rest of these fellow believers are brothers and sisters in the worldwide family of God, the ways that gospel might impinge upon his own rights as a slaveholder. Who enslaves their brother? That doesn't even make sense as a concept. Slave and brother are two completely different categories of creature in Roman society. Or at least they were. Not anymore. And even in saying he had wanted to keep Philemon with him, Paul is pushing on this family image. Paul says in verse 13 that Onesimus could have been Philemon's representative serving Paul while Paul was in chains. See, in Rome, prison wasn't a sentence. Prison was a holding tank until a trial and punishment could be decided upon. People didn't serve life in prison or 10 years in prison. They paid fines or were executed or whatever the sentence might be. And so, while waiting for trial, they depended for food, clothing, care on primarily their family on the outside. Roman prisons didn't really concern themselves with caring for the prisoners who were awaiting trial. So, Paul is saying, hey, Philemon, my dear brother, I have been in prison for Jesus' sake, needing the care of my family to sustain me. You didn't show up, but Onesimus did. And Onesimus could have stayed as a representative on your behalf of the care I might expect from my dear brother Philemon. But Paul sends him back to his master. So that, verse 15, you, Philemon, might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but, punchline here, as a beloved brother, both in your household and in the Lord. There's a further implication of family imagery as it is used in the Bible, beyond belonging and mutual responsibility to one another, and that's this, equality. Roman society was intensely stratified, with a rigid hierarchical social system from the emperor down to those who were born slaves, like Onesimus probably was. Philemon was near the top of that heap, Onesimus at the very bottom. That was the social reality that they had lived their whole lives in. But now the gospel has shattered that reality and they are family, beloved brothers to one another. As the Bible emphasizes family, one of the key things for us to hear is that the social hierarchies have been shattered. Because the Roman and Jewish households worked like this, extended families would all live together with a paterfamilias, a patriarch, overseeing the whole group, like the silver-backed gorilla. And then there would be an heir, the oldest son of the patriarch, who was next in status. And then there was everybody else, 
more or less equal to each other. Being the second son of the 12th didn't really make that much difference in terms of status. All that mattered was being the patriarch or the heir. Well, the Bible tells us in this family, God is our father, the patriarch. And Jesus is the firstborn son, the heir. So what does that make all the rest of us? Equal. Because this is a family. So that there is, in Paul's words in Galatians, no longer any Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Your move, Philemon. Paul, throughout the letter, refrains from commands, from enforcing these rights. Paul can see that the clear demands of the gospel mean you can't enslave a beloved brother. The logic is unassailable. But rights are deeply entrenched things. And Paul's commands could easily backfire, for one. But also they would rob Philemon of the character-altering potential of allowing the gospel to work itself out in his own heart. And so, Paul doesn't demand and enforce, but rather lays out the truth of what this community of the church is and then allows the Holy Spirit to work that truth out in Philemon's own heart. The New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, in his commentary on Philemon, argues for something that at first I bristled against. He doesn't think that Paul is wanting Philemon to free Onesimus. It took me a while to realize that what McKnight was saying is that the legal status in the eyes of the Roman Empire, of Onesimus as free or slave, was not what Paul was terribly concerned with. What Paul is concerned with is the inner workings of the church wherein the implications of the gospel are being worked out day by day in this family centered around Christ. Paul would have known that the social and political power of Christians in the 50s AD was virtually nil. And so some sort of social abolition campaign would have been at best irrelevant. But there was something that Paul believed was not irrelevant. And that was the church living according to the character and reality of God instead of the rights and social structures of the world. A group of people animated by the Holy Spirit who treat one another as family, with all the belonging, mutual obligations, and equality that such a thing demands. A church that witnesses in that sense, showing the world an alternate way of being according to different rules, a place where rights are laid aside in imitation of the Jesus who willingly went to the cross for us. Unlike so many in our day, Paul did not trust in social movements to bring the world into alignment with the character of God, because social movements are subject to the same dynamics of power and greed and sin that every other institution is subject to. Paul placed his hope in a family centered around the person and character of Jesus, people working out the implications of the gospel in their lives together, a family. This is one of the reasons why we continue to believe in the importance of a community of people trying to follow Jesus into the world together, as opposed to individuals in a just me and Jesus sort of relationship. It's in a family that we experience the belonging, practice fulfilling the mutual responsibilities, and feel the friction that forms us into mature people, people who are more and more like Jesus, the Jesus who willingly gave up his rights for the sake of us, his family, and who formed us as a family so that we might represent the character of God to the world together.
That, for Paul, is where hope for a world that is so very far from God's character lies. Let's be that people for one another.